There's two things I'd like to say. And first of all, I would like to express my uh, gratitude, my appreciation for your partnership in this ministry that God has given us together. The fact is that many times as I reflect, uh, I feel that we're very much unworthy of uh, your giving, of your generosity, and of your faithfulness. And actually, my comfort is that um, ultimately, you are, I trust, giving to God, and he will ultimately reward, and he is uh, utmost uh, in his worthiness of what you do for his honor and for his glory. So that honestly is a comfort to me in those moments of realization that God and his mercy works in us, through us, and in spite of us, and I, I give testimony of his working in that way. The second remark is, is just in regards to your singing. My wife and I are always very encouraged. There's debates in Christendom today about how conservative or how uh, modern your music should be. I'm not really interested in that. What, what I've found is that music should be joyful, and that shouldn't be a matter of debate. Uh, we should sing gratefully and joyfully, and uh, that's our perception of your worship times here throughout the years. We're always very encouraged by that. Uh, the first hymn was my father-in-law's favorite and my grandfather's favorite. That's special. We don't hear that a lot down in our neck of the woods. And the second one plays very well into what I want to share from the Word. But before we do that, let's do a quick update. And I'm claiming um, veteran missionary status now, so there's no fancy display out in the lobby. And my presentation uh, doesn't have music, special effects, uh, or anything like that. So I want to give you a very basic presentation. I'm assuming some of you know us, some of you don't. So just a quick idea of what it is we do. No frills, a veteran missionary presentation. So I am going to step off to a side. Andrew and Colette Thompson, our kids, they'll want you to go through this really fast now. So if you just forward the arrows, Josiah going back for a second year at Bob Jones, Natalia, senior, yep, Elias, seventh grade and Ian's in kindergarten. And that's all they want me to say about them. As far as our ministry as a family, if you would forward on, we've actually served in two places. We've served in Uruguay. We were there for almost seven years. Yeah, okay, I'm correct in that. And there we basically served in two church rescue projects that were uh, dangerously close to closing. God was good. And by his grace, both of those continue, although the second church plant is in much better shape. We were invited to come to Chile after our second church rescue project. We were supposed to be there for a year. No, yes, and then it became a year and a half, and we've never um, looked back after God worked in our hearts, specifically in the second place that we did a furlough replacement. God confirmed that direction, and that's where we've been working since then. All right, let's go ahead. I just want... To show you some faces, I don't expect you to remember all the names. Go ahead and zoom in a little bit more. These are the full-time students that we had um, this year, and I'm just highlighting specifically the third and the fourth year students. I don't want to get into um, um, your dad's better than my dad. I could say our COVID hurts were worse than your COVID hurts, so we could get into this. uh, I would win, by the way, by far. But COVID hit us really hard. We had a year of online studies last year. Our classes run March through December. They go with a calendar year. And we had to make a really big decision in February of this year, and that was, do we bring the students back or not? So I was scared. I I talked to what's the equivalent of the FBI. I talked to a lawyer. I talked to a doctor. I covered all my bases. We prayed, and we went ahead. But 
that meant that we didn't take any, full, any part-time students, and we didn't take any students from outside the dorm except for three married students that were already in the program. So we kept the circle as tight as possible just to avoid um, the complications that we might have. And we move forward because our location isn't visible from the road and there aren't a lot of neighbors, and I won't get into it. But we were navigating gray areas there based on what the government was putting us under. So these are the students that are in third and fourth year, and it was largely because of them that we moved forward. Let's go ahead and zoom in. One of the things I love is that we're in Chile, and yet uh, Veronica is the third, fourth, fourth student from Uruguay that's been able to come. We left part of our heart there. And we're always encouraged when the Lord sends someone from Uruguay to study with us. And then one more. Another encouraging thing is uh, even from southern Argentina now, we're beginning to receive students. Eduardo. Um, okay, so that was March, yeah? We had a little, uh, he got married, and uh, I married them in the woods, kind of hiding, 20 of us, uh, keeping the numbers down, making sure the neighbors didn't see anything. It was the weirdest thing ever. Super cool, though. Uh, we helped set the tables, and then I officiated the service, and then we cleaned up afterwards. It was a wedding like none other. But very encouraged to see some students coming from there. And finally, Sebastian, he's a local guy, but what I love there is God is sending us some pastor's kids, and that I absolutely love. It means that somehow in that family there was a love for ministry that was fostered. God worked. And I love it when a second-generation um, a pastor's kid comes on board to study for the ministry. All right, let's keep moving. Um, I just want to highlight um, what we're primarily about is preparing pastors for the ministry. There's others that, that come with other pursuits. There's some ladies that come. We're grateful for them. Our number one goal, though, is preparing pastors. So I just thought I'd review the last few years and who the Lord has blessed us with and, and what they're doing right now. So 2017 graduating class, Denise, she serves in Santiago. She's since been married. I think she's due to be a mother any day. Alvaro, he pastors up in the desert in Copiapó, not too far from where my brother-in-law serves. And then 2018, Victor, he was a married student who already had some theological training. He's pastoring three hours north of us in Concepcion. And Samuel, a very young guy, he's pastoring up so high in the mountains that uh, stone's throw he'd be in Argentina. He's right up there with the goats and the other animals that they tend to up in the mountain regions. 2019, Christian, he's serving with us at the Bible Institute. Freddy is pastoring about an hour and a half away in Licanray. If you ever come down to visit us, I'm taking you there. All I can say is it's postcard perfect. Uh, you have to be there. Hans, he pastors three hours north in Chillán, and Ruben, three hours north in Coihueco. Let's keep going. 2020, we've got a young man, Brian. He's uh, still single, but he's pursuing camping ministry. Valeria serves in Temuco. She married one of our teachers. He was uh, single. That worked out nicely. Ricardo pastors in Perquenco. And Eliseo is doing a short internship at his church before pastoring. So if we're talking about, I'm going to show you some pictures of the construction. I care about that. That's a useful tool. But the things I'm excited about um, are these young men that have completed the course um, that are pastoring today. And ultimately, it means that, that what we're doing um, multiplies. So they go to local churches. They have an impact far beyond what we could have in one location. And um, growing pains, young pastors, lots of them. We follow up with them. We're always concerned. And um, they're not like I was. When I graduated from college, the idea of going back to one of my college professors, 
being sincere, asking for marital help. It would have never crossed my mind. But these guys are very honest, very straightforward, and give us many opportunities to continue ministering to their lives. And now just a few pictures of the construction. I'd like to say that uh, it's been brutally hard because there's been weeks on end where workers can't go work. Um, your materials went up, I understand, right? Plywood doubled in price. Yeah, well, we had doubles and triples, and we couldn't get things, period. So we've had all kinds of obstacles, but, but God has been good, and what has happened has been despite everything. So we had a dilapidated property downtown. There's the old building. God provided a cellar, and he provided the eight acres just outside of town. That's what the thing is supposed to look like there, that little picture. We're about halfway there. Let's continue moving forward. All right, so we started with faculty housing. We needed to get someone on the property, so things went walk off and thieves went barge in. House on the left is where we're living. House on the right is where our closest Chilean co-worker is living. We've both been on the property now for, we've been there a year. They've been there like nine months. So very grateful for this auspicious um, start. Then the dorm was the big project that was tackled. Uh, It's got an apartment for a dorm supervisor, and it's got room for about, I think technically it's 18 students, but it's South America, so if we need to make it 36, it'll be 36. (laughs) It's not a problem. And finally, the main building's coming along pretty well. The floor was poured two weeks ago, and some of the metal structure is going up. That'll be everything else, classrooms, library, kitchen, dining hall, laundry, all the rest. It's about a 5,500-square-foot building. And is there anything else? No, there's not. Very good. So very brief, uh, very veteran missionary-style presentation. I apologize. But that's just a quick overview of what we're about. We have some other plans, desires uh, for the year ahead, but that will depend on the Lord's timing and provision as well. Maybe we can talk about that a little later. Now, you know we South Americans are famous for not taking care of the clock, so let me just give me a second here. We'll put a timer on, and we'll do our very best. Let's, um, let's go to the book of Psalms. I wish I could remember the exact text, but I remember that, uh, Pastor, you must have sent the link, or someone from church did, or... Maybe it was just COVID, and I was listening to one of the messages here early on when the pandemic broke. And Pastor Dennis preached on, um, then he preached on, on the Psalms, and I wish I could remember the text. But it was a real blessing to me. And the fact of the matter is, this last year and a half, our family has spent a lot of time in the Psalms. Um, I think some of that um, is understandable, and some of that was specific to our circumstances. I'm... I'm not sure where you found refuge in the last uh, turbulent months. Um, I think the U.S. has seen something of violent social unrest. We've sure seen our fill of it. Uh, Political turmoil. uh, You've seen plenty of it here. In Chile right now, they're rewriting our Constitution. No idea what's going to come of that. But I'm not terribly encouraged with what I'm seeing so far. And, of course, we've experienced severe pandemic lockdowns. It's hard to explain, and I don't mean to complain. I'll I'll attribute it to God's sustaining grace, so let me frame it that way. But we've spent up to 11 weeks in our house, able to leave two times a week for two hours for essential shopping. And then sometimes you arrive at the supermarket, and they've narrowed down the list of what is essential shopping, 
And so you actually have uh, certain aisles that are cordoned off and you can't buy those things because they're no longer considered absolutely essential. Uh, maternity wear, for example, not essential. So we faced some tough times, 10 weeks, 11 weeks at a time, where my wife would use her two outings very judiciously and I would use my outings very judiciously because if I have to go to the bank, that's one of my weekly outings. Um, and obviously the moment you step off your property, you're wearing a mask the entire time, whether you're jogging down the road or I suppose in your car they don't do that, but shy of that, very strict. So it's been, it's been tough. And we found time and time again safe harbor in the Psalms. So that's on my mind this morning as we approach Psalm 39. But beyond that, I'm a missionary reporting to a supporting church. So obviously I'm, I'm considering the gospel that blesses people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And, and you may have not considered before that the Psalms don't just give us incredible comfort in times of difficulty, but uh, the Psalms also give us missionary perspective. Now, the most evident, perhaps the most clear case, um, is a popular book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. It takes its premise from Psalm 67. The idea there, it argues that missions exist because worship doesn't. God is not worshipped as he should be everywhere. Therefore, the cause of missions must go forward. So we make disciples of Jesus around the world because we've tasted the joy of worshipping Jesus and we want all the families of the earth included. So the Psalms is a missionary book as well. Now this morning I'd like to go to Psalm 39, and it says absolutely nothing directly about missions. But I would remind you of three things, very simple things, things that you know, I think, things that I know, but things that don't sufficiently impact our daily living. And those three things are that life is short, that God is our only hope, and that we ought to live accordingly. I would persuade you that surrendering your life to full-time gospel service at home or around the world is eminently reasonable in light of reality. There's nothing foolish or reckless about it. And of course, there's every avenue of life possible to live in this very same way. But let me explain something. I think it's easy for a missionary to come back to see things in a fresh perspective and sometimes to rail heatedly against comforts and other things. That, that, that's not my intention. Not my intention to guilt trip absolutely anyone. Let me give you my frame of reference. Um, almost 30 years ago to the day, I was a senior in high school. I was 17, right? So I'm about to turn 47. Let's just get that over with. Um, I went to a small missionary kid's school because I had the privilege of growing up in Chile. There was four of us in my graduating class, four guys. I was close to one guy in particular. And um, I was able to visit him recently in Jacksonville. Humanly speaking, he's done very well for himself. He's the general manor, manager of a large dealership, um, employs about 150 people, lives very well, offers his 16-year-old daughter a Tesla upon obtaining her driver's license. The balance sheet would indicate that, and by all measures, he's done quite well. What I remember, though, this is the context, uh, and this is because I don't want you thinking that I'm guilt-tripping you. I remember heading to Northland Baptist Bible College and him warning me about getting too fundy and too crazy. 
and warning me specifically about not following in his parents' footsteps or my parents' footsteps and becoming a missionary because they live so poorly uh, that their white shirts, they can't even afford to keep uh, white T-shirts, you know, because they're, they're always the sweat rings under the armpits. Missionaries can never afford white shirts, white T-shirts. Now, he meant that as an example and as a joke, but you see where I'm coming from? I visited him 30 years later, and humanly speaking, a lot of his advice was spot on, right? So his net worth is many times over my net worth, He has a couple of beautiful homes. Um, I don't have any home. Um, We're praying about that. But you see what I'm saying? From a certain perspective, having gone into full-time Christian service, specifically as a missionary, looks pretty foolish right about now. Could you say that? You could argue that from a certain perspective. All I want to do this morning, argue from a different perspective, that living in this life as a full-time servant of the Lord or serving the Lord in any capacity, but living in such a sacrificial way that others would consider foolish, it makes perfect sense in light of Scripture. So don't feel like I'm guilt-tripping you, like I'm speaking against earthly possessions. I just want to share a little bit of my heart and my perspective that has to do with the pandemic, that has to do with some of what we've lived through, but has to do, too, with some things that every time I come back on furlough, I renegotiate again with the Lord. And he's always good, and he always directs me to the right places. So Psalm 39, let's explore first, and then let's read. Psalm 39 is one of four psalms that uh, bring together to conclusion the first book of the psalms. There's five books in the psalms. So this almost seems like it's part of a unit, um, and it brings to a close this first and and longest, I believe, book of, of the psalms. It's written by David, evidently one of his chief musicians, See, this is where it gets tough. Jeduthun was meant to perform um, something along those lines. This particular psalm, it's not a song of praise. It's not a song of wisdom. It's a song of lamentation. So a lamentation normally is a psalm that pleads with God. It ends with a note of hope. And this particular psalm, the note of hope is a lot more difficult to detect, and we'll have to talk about that. So... If we were singing this psalm, uh, we wouldn't be able to sing it quite as joyfully as we've done this morning. We'd have to choose probably a minor chord, and that's how we'd sing this particular psalm. David is in anguish. So it's not Psalm 1, wisdom. It's not Psalm 150, rejoicing in worship. This is a lamentation, a plea with God, and we'll have to dig to find the hope here. All right, so let me go ahead and read this. Um, Some of the other changes since I've last been here, we've got to use these. I appreciate the large print, but it's not going to work. So let me go ahead and read this, and then uh, let's talk about full-time Christian service missions in the perspective of Psalm 39. I said, I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle, while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Surely every man walketh in a vain show, 
Surely they are disquieted and vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I was dumb. I opened not my mouth because thou didst it. Remove thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty or his treasure to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Let's pray. Good Father, as we approach your word, may we do so with reverent hearts, willing to obey and consider your ways and our ways, too, in light of your truth. Give me freedom to speak. Glory be to your name in Christ's name. Amen. Very well. Let me quickly hit verses 1 and 3. It's really hard, to be quite honest with you, to know exactly what's going on here. So let's just stick with the obvious facts and try to understand a little bit. But, but there's a lot here to, to dig out in verses 1 and 3. We know that David is in anguish. We know he's surrounded by wicked people. And we know that at least for a while he's purposed to remain silent. Because somehow, we don't know how, if he speaks, God would be disrespected. So he's purposed to remain silent. Ultimately, it's like a fire. He's compelled and ultimately he speaks. But this is what we don't know. We don't know if what he ultimately speaks is what he wanted to say all along when he was in anguish, or if perhaps because of quiet reflection during this time of not speaking, what he now says is the wisdom of having waited. So, so we don't know if he finally says what he's wanted to say all along, or if during his silence and time with God, he's learned something that he's now sharing. That part we're not sure about. But I tend to think that he speaks some of the insights that he's acquired during the silence. That's just an opinion. At any rate, we know something of his frame of mind. We see ultimately in this psalm that silence gives way to speech and speech gives way to hope. There's a progression in the psalm. Then in verses 4 to 3, he cries out to God. He says in verse 4, Lord, Make me to know my end and the measure of my days. Let me know how frail I am. Verse 8, deliver me from my transgressions. Verse 10, remove thy stroke away from me. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears. And verse 13, O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. So let's briefly consider that life is short, that God is our only hope, and that we ought to live accordingly, and that some things don't look so foolish in light of this perspective. So first of all, life is short. Now that ought to be something supremely obvious to all of us. Uh, Maybe the young people don't see it so clearly, but with the passing of the years, you'd have to be terribly oblivious not to realize by now that life is short. But people do their best to banish this idea from their consciousness. And many people live like there's, like there's no end in sight. Um, and even Christians can become so wrapped up in the affairs of this life and forget that it's a fleeting pilgrimage. That's all it is. 
We seek down, we sink down very deep roots, but we will all soon be uprooted. That's the destiny of every man and every woman. Our lifespan isn't substantial, and what we accomplish in this life is not substantial either. I don't know about you guys. My dad, he actually knew about construction. I learned just enough to be dangerous, so not much. But he had this slogan, I think it's probably common. It was the old, in 50 years, no one will care, so we don't have to do this very pretty, because in 50 years, no one's going to care. And the fact of the matter is our life accomplishments 50 years down the road, I don't think they're going to be very significant. Obviously, God in his mercy and his grace does wonderful things. So this clearly troubles David. It's not just that he's surrounded by his enemies. Um, No matter how healthy your lifestyle, no matter how little risk you take, no matter how blessed your genetic pool, this life is short. This is universally true. So David recognizes in verse 4, he says, uh, my days, uh, I'm frail. He says that his life is uh, just a few hand breaths. Thinking about this, uh, we still measure horses and hands, right? But that's like 18, 19. Is that like the biggest you'd go? Anyway, that's, that's not a very long measurement, the kind of measurement you take with your hand. Um, he says that the men are a mere breath, verse 5. Men are a passing shadow. I love that second song we sang. It was very much in line with what we're saying now. He is forever, or just a moment. Men are a mere breath. Their vanity, and in the same sense as is used in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, like all of God's people, he mentions in, in verse 12, he's just a wayfaring stranger. He's a pilgrim, like his fathers were before him. In verse 13, his death is near at hand. The time of his passing is near at hand. So he pleads with God to make him know his end, the fleeting nature of his life, and he intends to face the dead days ahead uh, guided by this particular knowledge. And the text not only says that life is short and life is fragile, but he says in verse 8, deliver me from my transgressions. In other words, life is short, but then sin makes life hard on top of that. Um, A great deal of his anguish stems from his sin. He recognizes that some of the punishment is of the Lord. He's transgressed, and God in his mercy has intervened with punishment. So we live in a world marred by sin, where sinners hurt each other every day, and we add to our own affliction with our selfish choices. Not only that, not only does sin make life hard, but possessions gathered are soon squandered. He says man heaps up wealth, but he doesn't know who's going to gather. We pursue the status, the comfort of material goods, but but even when we gather a good pile, the satisfaction is short-lived, often dearly dearly bought at the expense of many more important things. And then very often we leave our piles to the people we love, but they become a matter of contention and can easily be squandered by those who didn't work for them. That was one of the things that troubled Solomon. What was the point of earning all this? Those who come before me are just going to fight about it and squander it. So possessions gathered soon squandered. And the text here talks about the beauty that God consumes. That can also be translated treasure. What man holds dear, God in his love, purifying love, he consumes. Treasures pursued are often consumed. God, he realizes that God consumes like a moth what is, what is dear to his wayward, wayward children. We, we long for a generous God that gives us what we want. But our God is merciful enough to withhold and to take away. 
much higher plane than we normally tend to think of. So the, so the question here is very simple. Can my ambitions, my pursuits, stand the scrutiny of the brevity of life? So is, is my living in accordance with that idea? Or am I living like I'm going to live forever? Uh, how am I living? Do my ambitions and my dreams stand the scrutiny of this uh, brief lifespan that I face? Am I wasting this fleeting shadow? Am I, am I wasting this passing breath? Secondly and quickly, life is short. We don't want to stop there. And though we have to look for it, the other idea that's important here is that God is our only hope. There are many hopes in this world, but there's only one legitimate hope. You can hope in many things, but only one thing is trustworthy. The, the most hopeful verse here is not typical of the Psalms. Normally you would get to the end and you would find the hope. But here, here it's a little bit differently. Here we find the hope in the middle, and it's in verse 7. And it says, And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. Hope's not at the end, but hope is here, and hope is in the middle, at the end of this first stanza. Others have placed their hope elsewhere, but by this point at least, David is trusting exclusively in God. He says in verse 8, there's, there's none other that can deliver him from his transgressions. There's, there's no other who safeguards investments like God, where treasures are safe for eternity, where, where they're safe from moth, from rust, from, from thieves. They can't get in. That's a, a sure investment. God who disciplines his children, who refuses foolish requests, and frustrates their imprudent ambitions. Verse 12 is is beautiful. I don't know if you see the trust there, but I see the trust in David pouring out his heart before God and speaking honestly and sincerely, something that's very difficult for us to do privately and even more difficult for us to do corporately. But I see his trust in God. He just pours out his heart and speaks to God. And at the end of the road, his hope, the hope of the stranger and the pilgrim, verse 12 clearly indicates, is only in God. So God in his great mercy sends affliction so that the comfortable can see this life for what it is. He strips away the veneer, brings us face to face with reality. It's painful. It's the work of the knife, but not of one who means to hurt us. It's the work of the surgeon's knife that works for our good. And even though it's painful, ultimately it's meant for our good. So if life were only brief, frustrating, and meaningless, we would have no reasonable option but despair. But this life is lived in the presence of a good, sovereign God who can reverse even the most negative circumstances we face, so there's always room for hope. Because Jesus' death, in a very real sense, death is becoming undone. Because Jesus died. And all things can be and are being in the process of reversed for those he has died for. So there are many distractions in this life, but there is only one hope. You can bury yourself in labors. You can bury yourself in hobbies. You can bury yourself in academics. You can bury yourself in academic relationships. You can drown your sorrows in virtual reality, substance abuse, entertainment, but there is only one hope. Everything else is vanity. We are created beings, and we are utterly dependent on our Creator, human race, us individually, the entire race, we've, we've chosen to go our own way. 
We have reaped the reward of our rebellion, which is death. And if God doesn't provide for our rescue, there is no hope. So we praise God for Jesus, the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Or there would be no hope. So if you're here this morning and you realize you need to be reconciled with God, there's plenty of people here, myself included, we'd love to speak with you. There is hope for you in God's Son, Jesus. So God alone grants enduring happiness. That's why, despite your fears, God can make you happy in any place and in any profession of his choosing. This would sound bad. I hope this isn't going out too internationally. The second city we served in in Uruguay, there was no redeeming grace in it. The exterior. I mean, there was nothing pretty about the place. We served there for almost four years, very happily, joyfully, and I would say that's no credit to us. It's a credit to God. Somehow we were content in the place he had put us and in the profession of his choosing. He can grant you a fulfilling, fruitful life in the most complicated neighborhood in Minneapolis. But do you really believe that? And if you believe it for yourself, do you believe it for your children? He can grant you a fulfilling, fruitful life in a country where you'll never master the local language and you'll always be singled out every last single day of your life as a foreigner. He can make you happy there because he is the only hope. Comfortable, familiar circumstances, you're hoping in that, it's just not going to work. But the question is, do we believe that? David trusted God, that's evident. And you far less than we do. We live on this side of the cross. We so much, know so much more of his tender mercies, of his wonderful promises. We have a better high priest. We have Jesus Christ. How much more reason to make God our only hope? And don't believe the false dichotomy that, that, that you only have two options on the table. That somehow you have to make God your hope and be miserable or find enduring happiness somewhere else. That's just not the way it works. Pursuing God and pursuing enduring happiness are one and the same thing, brother and sister. God alone gives respite in this life and secure promises for the life to come. God is your only hope, and he's the, he's the only hope of the nations, the peoples, the tribes, the tongues. If you have hope, are, are we not duty-bound to do something about that? Those who live and die without hope. Are we not under some moral obligation? Paul said he was. I think the moral imperative is still there today. If we have hope and others do not, should we not share? So do my ambitions, pursuits, acknowledge the reality that God is my only hope, or am I treasuring hopeless distractions? What does that look like? And finally, briefly, we should live accordingly. If this life is short, if God alone is our hope, How then should I live? Or the question becomes, how am I living? And this is why I wanted to give you perspective, because this is very deeply personal to me. This seems to be an exercise for me every furlough when I come back and I see that at least on the balance sheet, my friends from high school are doing far better than I am. They have the admiration of this world, a lot of people kissing up to them, trying to get ahead based on what they're able to do. That is not my case. The truth that really we believe they change our behavior. The truths that we truly believe, they change our behavior. So if you believe in the law of gravity, you repair your roof carefully because you're convinced that the law of gravity could bring dire consequences if you fell off that roof. If you believe in the law of inertia, 
you fix the brakes of your car, yes? Because you know what happens when uh, that moving object hits an immovable object. You know the consequences. So what would believing that life is short and that God is our only hope, what would that look like in terms of behavior? It would have to affect all areas, right? Who I befriend, why I befriend them, who I marry, why I marry, what pastimes I pursue, how much importance I assign them, why I study, what I study, where I work, what I work at, where I give, how much I give, and why I give as well. So what would I say? I would say, Andrew, me, this Andrew, or Andy, don't live for this life. Don't strive for what perishes. Find comfort, happiness, significance, and purpose in God's Son, Jesus. Dedicated missionary service, is it foolish? Well, from a mathematical perspective, earthly perspective, it sure could seem that way. But it's only foolish depending on your perspective. Is it worth it? I would say that in light of the brevity, the fragility of life, the fact that God, not a checking account, is our only hope, I would quote Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jim Elliott and four other men gave their lives in the jungle. So I think in many ways your perspective about missionary service It says something about your worldview, how you see things. It's only a foolish endeavor for yourself, for your kids, or even worse for your grandkids. That's where I see the rub sometimes. Releasing your grandkids into missionary service seems to be a very difficult thing for some believers. Whatever the case may be, it says something about your worldview, about what you believe about this life and the life to come. What do we do with the last verse? Last two verses? I don't want to go there. I just want to mention that The words seem a little inappropriate perhaps to you, but we should never forget that we have a merciful God that understands when his children are in desperation and speak honestly to him. He is a God who knows our hearts and is not surprised when we speak our mind and reach out to him in anguish and pain. We have permission to speak boldly to God regarding our heart, especially those of us who are in Christ and have a intercessor when he asks God to leave him he's not asking God to anything more than abandoning his discipline surgery is painful he's just asking for God to relent and when he says I I just want to uh, go hence and be no more that's just a euphemism for for death if you're in any doubt read Psalm 16 David's hope for resurrection there is very clear no doubt about it But here, it's before he dies, he wants God in his discipline and punishment to relent and to give him some breathing room. Most of us, if asked, would claim that we want to live this life for God. But do my life ambitions and daily pursuits affirm or contradict that claim? What am I truly living for? What do I truly want out of this life? What does success look like from the perspective of Psalm 39? And I think we ask that whether we're in full-time ministry or not. We're talking about an approach to life, the life of a pilgrim and a sojourner. Or if you want to take some New Testament perspectives, the perspective of the soldier who is there to make his boss happy and not become entangled in the affairs of this world. So what would I say in closing? Sojourn well, weary pilgrim, live without regrets, 
There is only one hope in this short life, and we ought to live accordingly. Good Father, thank you for your word and for the privilege of being your children, for the privilege of serving and honoring and glorifying your name. Help us to live wisely, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.